If you have your Bible, if you'll go to Genesis chapter 42, and we'll also be in Genesis chapter 45 today, finish out this series that we've been in called, called Perseverance, where we've been looking at the life of Joseph. Next week, I'm going to be beginning a new series called Look Up, and we're going to go through the book of Philippians together. The book of Philippians is one of the most encouraging books in all of Scripture. Uh, how many of you were born before 1980? How many of you were born before 1980? How many of you after 1980? Okay. If you're born after 1980, you're a millennial, and whenever you think about the Dallas Cowboys, you think that the vintage Dallas Cowboys are back when there was Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, and Michael Irvin. That's vintage Dallas Cowboys. I wore their colors today, Paul. I, I, I was kind of hard on them last week, and so I decided I need to wear their colors. But for you, the vintage Dallas Cowboys are the 90s Super Bowls. But for those born before 1980, when you think about the vintage Dallas Cowboys, you think of Tom Landry, and who is the greatest quarterback? Eddie LeBaron, that's right. right. No, Roger Staubach. Roger Staubach. And, and what Roger Staubach was known for is he was... He was captain comeback. I mean, they would, they would be for three and a half quarters, the Cowboys would be horrible. They couldn't block, they couldn't run, they couldn't throw, they couldn't catch. Everybody was complaining about how bad they were. Roger looked horrible. And then somewhere you'd start hearing, dun, 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 And Roger would just start throwing the ball around the field, and people would start catching it and running for touchdowns. And suddenly they would make this incredible comeback, and the Cowboys would win the game, and everybody would be so excited. I remember we used to have Sunday night church. And, and it was uh, all, all the men, Sunday night church started at 6.30, and the game would end about 6.45. And so after the big comeback, you'd see all the car doors open, and all the men would get out of their cars, and they'd walk into church trying to act like they were just, you know, being nonchalant. It was great. You know, it, it was awesome, but it was an incredible, incredible to watch them come from behind. Now, Joseph had, had just endured one of the most remarkable life comebacks in history. I mean, talk about a, a reversal of fortune. Joseph's life had, had been pretty rough. I mean, he had been sold into slavery by his brothers, betrayed by his brothers, taken to a foreign land there in Egypt. He had then been accused, falsely accused, of rape. He was thrown into jail. He had no hope of ever having a better life. And then the Pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt has a dream, and he can't find anybody to interpret it for him. Well, Joseph, whenever he was in the prison, had gained this reputation as being someone who could interpret dreams. Actually, it was God using him to interpret these dreams. So the Pharaoh of Egypt drags him out of the pit. He has him shaved. He puts new clothes on him. He goes before him. He says, here's my dream. Can you interpret it for me? And of all the people in Egypt... Joseph is the only one who can interpret the Pharaoh's dream. So everything instantly changes in Joseph's life. Joseph is taken from prison to second in command in all of Egypt. He is living large. He has designer clothes, Egyptian cotton. He has a Mercedes chariot. He has Gucci gold chains like Paul over here. You know, I mean, he has everything. He has even something. Now, I know this is hard for a few of you to believe. He has something even better than an Aggie ring. 
That's tough, isn't it, Aggies? Okay, that's like the pinnacle of Aggiehood right there, the Aggie ring. Joseph has a signet ring given to him by the Pharaoh of Egypt. And that ring is like the signature of the Pharaoh. He can put it in the clay. It has the authority of the king. Now, Joseph's claim to fame is that he foresaw that Egypt was going to have seven good years of harvest and then seven years of famine. And so he warned them that they needed to build up reserves during those good years. And so the Pharaoh put him in charge of that. He went all around the country. He helped them build these high levels of reserves so that whenever the famine hit, hit, whenever Lake Ray Nile was completely dry, when all the beautiful vegetation had burned off the Sphinx and all that was left was just sand, Egypt was in good shape. In fact, they had stored so much food that there was plenty for them, and it really kick-started the economy because now they had the opportunity to sell food to other nations that were very hungry, and I imagine they could do it at outrageous prices. So Joseph was living large, and I would imagine there had to be nights whenever he and his wife Asenath would come back from a five-star restaurant, and they would come into their home there, and they would see the two little boys that God had blessed them with, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they would run into Joseph's arms, and he would hug them, and they'd, Daddy, it's so good to see you. And then Joseph would go back to his nice bedroom, and he would, he would lay his head on that soft pillow and enjoy all the comforts that came with home. I would imagine there were some nights where he began remembering He remembered how he felt whenever his brothers threw him in the pit to die. He remembered sitting in that slave cage waiting to be bought. He remembered being falsely accused of rape. He remembered how it felt to lay his head on a rock there in the prison. To be a man that was living as if he were dead. To be a man living with no hope. And I would imagine there were times where Joseph went back and he remembered what life was like. Now, life was too good to be true. And there was no need to think about all that stuff. No need to think about how things used to be because life is good. But then one day, Joseph gets up to go to work. Then one day, Joseph, going about his business, comes into collision with his past. The Scriptures begin the story in chapter 42 and verse 1. The Bible says, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Now, a couple things here in verse 1. Who's Jacob in relation to Joseph? Who's Jacob? Y'all are Bible scholars. Come on. It's his father. Thank you, Dusty. It's his dad. Now, Jacob also went by another name, and that was Israel. And so whenever you hear the children of Israel, it's talking about the descendants of Jacob. The nation of Israel literally comes through the line of Jacob. So Jacob learns that there's grain to be had in Egypt. So he says to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? In other words, you're not going to find your answers in one another. Listen, he went on, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain. 
for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Now, if you were here in the beginning of this series, you remember this is the fulfillment to the initial dream that Joseph had. Now his brothers were bowing down before him, and he was in the position of being the leader or the patriarch of the family. Verse 7, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now there is a collision going on here. All of Joseph's emotions, his pain, his hurt, it is all coming, it is all rushing up within him. And so Joseph starts playing some games with his brothers. The first thing he does is he threatens their life. He accuses them of being spies. Why, why are you here? You're trying to spy on us, see what we have. Hey, you know we can kill you. He starts getting them a little bit nervous. And then he begins interrogating them, asking them personal questions. Where do you come from? Uh, tell me about your younger brother. He really starts digging into where, the th- where they are and who they are. And in the process, he discovers that his full brother, Benjamin, was still alive. And so as he begins to interrogate them, they start getting nervous. And they say to each other in verse 21, Obviously, we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but he would not listen. But we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. So the brothers had begun growing up a little bit. They were realizing that what they did to Joseph was wrong. I think they were also haunted by the scene. They couldn't get it out of their mind, the distress that he was under whenever they threw him into that pit. And then they lied to their father and said that he had died. Well, Reuben, the older brother, says, Didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. And now we must account for his blood. They thought they were going to die here in Egypt. And they did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. Now, get a sense of the depth of the emotion in verse 24. All this is going on. Joseph's the powerful man. And as he hears this going on amongst his brothers, he turns away from them and he cries. He just starts bawling. And then he turned back and spoke to them. And he took Simeon, from them and had him bound before their eyes. So now Joseph takes Simeon and he has him thrown into prison and he tells them this, don't you come back here without bringing your youngest brother. And if you bring the youngest brother, then I know you've been telling the truth. He also does something a little bit underhanded. He takes the money that they had used to buy the grain and he puts it back in each of their bags. So on the way home, they open their bags to see the grain, and their money is right back there in the bag. Now, on one hand, they're like, hey, cool, we got our money back. But on the other hand, they're like, uh-oh. The Egyptians are going to think that we stole their grain. 
Well, the story continues, and it takes up a lot of scriptural real estate, so let let me kind of throw the story forward. They go home to their father, and eventually they run out of food. And so they take Benjamin, the younger brother, and they take him back to Egypt. Now, when they get back to Egypt, the brothers show some honesty. They actually get a hold of Joseph Stewart and tell him, hey, uh, somehow the money, the last time we were here, the money got back in our bags, and they come, they come clean with that, and they show Joseph that they were telling the truth about Benjamin by bringing him there. And so Joseph throws them completely off their game. Remember the last time they were there, he's like, you're a bunch of spies. Why are you here? He's very harsh with them. The next time they come back, he invites them to his house. And so they're all nervous. Why is he inviting us to his house? So they go down to Joseph's house. They're in Goshen. And he throws a party. I mean, they eat a great feast. He throws a party. In fact, they all get drunk. That's the Bible's words, not mine. They get intoxicated. Next morning they wake up. They're not really sure exactly what happened, what didn't happen. He sends them on their way. And as they go, Joseph again, doing something a little prideful, a little bit sneaky, he takes the silver cup that he drank from, and he puts it in his younger brother Benjamin's grain bag. So his brothers head back to Canaan, and Joseph has some of his soldiers overrun them. So they catch them on the way back, and they say, Hey, one of you guys stole the master's cup. Well, the brothers are like, No, he didn't. Hey, check our stuff. If you find it in our stuff, you can kill whoever stole it. So they start checking their stuff, and guess what? They find the cup in Benjamin's bag. So they march the brothers back to Egypt, and I could imagine Benjamin's fear. I'm going to get back to Egypt, and they're going to execute me. And whenever they get before Joseph again, this time Judah starts pleading for the life of his younger brother. Joseph could see that in his brother's lives, some things had changed. Instead of only thinking about themselves, they were thinking about one another. They had been honest with them. And I think Joseph had had to work through some of his own emotion. And so he comes to a point in chapter 45, verse 1, where the Bible says Joseph could no longer keep his composure. And so in front of all of his attendants, he calls out, Send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. In verse 2, But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and also Pharaoh's household heard it. What is going on down there in Joseph's chambers? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a scene. And Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer because they were terrified in his presence. Now, you need to really make sure you catch this next part because this is huge to understanding the life of Joseph. And it's huge to understanding why it occupies so much space in Scripture. Joseph's pain was so great that only an act of God was going to help him move on. And that's exactly how Joseph had come to see his misfortune. He had come to see his misfortune through the lens of God. And he had come to see it as an act of God. 
And so Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near me. And they came near him. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be worried or angry with yourselves for selling me here because, now notice this, God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Hey guys, don't, don't, don't kick yourself. Realize that God has been at work this whole time. He sent me here. He knew the famine was going to come. He has called you as Abraham's descendants through Jacob to be the remnant, to be Israel. God has plans for you. This, this is no accident. Therefore, it is not you who sent me, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Return quickly to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your sheep, cattle, and all that you have. And there I will sustain you. For there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, everything you have will become destitute. Verse 14 says, Then Joseph threw his arms around Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. And Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. It was a scene of forgiveness. A scene of renewal. In Joseph's life, he reached that point where he was able to move on. And here's a question for you this morning. Is there an anger or a hurt in your life that it's time for you to move on from? Is there someone in your life to which you really need to extend forgiveness? Or do you find yourself in a position where you are continually living with anger and resentment. Living with anger and resentment, it's hell on earth. It tortures you. When anger pulls up a U-Haul to your life, and it takes up residence within your soul, it, 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 it imprisons you. It handcuffs you. It robs you of your joy. When anger really grows roots within your life, it turns to bitterness. Initially, you start out angry over something, and then over time, you just become a bitter person. You're angry over everything. Nobody pleases you. Nothing makes you happy. You're just a bitter person because anger has grown roots within your soul. And everybody you encounter experiences the reality of your anger. Here's the ironic thing about when we're angry or resentment towards another person. Uh, it hurts you more than anybody else. Sometimes in our mind, we're over here stewing over something and rehearsing it, and we're going, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did that. What were they thinking? I wonder if they were planning this. I wonder if they were doing that. And we're over here staying up at night. It's robbing us of our, of our joy. We're not enjoying the people that are around us. And frequently, the person that we're angry with is oblivious to all that. 
They're just going on about life. They sometimes don't even know that you're mad at them. And you're over here rehearsing it and living it and living it over and over and over again. Understand this. Nobody in this room is perfect. We all sin. We all fall short of God. You say, well, I'm kind of like pretty perfect. Okay, you're also prideful, and therefore you're a sinner. So we're all in this boat together. To sin is to rebel against God. It's whenever we turn to our own way, and all of us do things that are wrong. All of us hurt other people. All of us say things we shouldn't, have attitudes that we shouldn't. We all do things that are wrong. And I think within the natural human spirit, we, we realize that we fall short and we do things that we shouldn't, so we often try to make up for it. And we make up for it by doing good things. Okay, I'll, I'll uh, be philanthropic and give to charity. I'll, I'll go to church. I'll follow the golden rule. I, I won't get drunk. I, I won't gamble, at least whenever my church friends are around. Um, I'll only go to radar, rated R movies if they're about the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, I'll make sure that I listen to Christian music sometimes. And, and so we, we kind of do these good things and we think, all right, if I do these good things, then God will like me and it'll make up for all the, the bad that I've done. But no matter how much good we do, we, we still do wrong and we still find ourselves as a sinner. And so the scriptures talk about that uh, it's not of works that we, we find forgiveness, that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the eyes of God. So literally, uh, the best good work that you bring to God, it's like a leper's rag in his eyes because you're still a sinner. You, you still have done things that are wrong. And so as you understand more about God and, and you read the Bible more, you begin to realize that our only hope is for God to do something on our behalf. And that's really the story of the gospel, that God has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. I say it this way. This way. God intervened into our scene so that we might be redeemed. Because God loved the world, he sent his son. And though we have all sinned, his son lived a sinless life. His son really is righteous in the eyes of God. His son did not treat people in a sinful manner, did not harbor sinful attitudes. But according to the divine plan of God, his son was betrayed, he was rejected, he was crucified. But it was not just the execution of a good man, but that as Christ died on the cross, he was making an atonement, a, 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 he was shedding his blood for the sins of of humankind. The wrath of God intended for sin was being poured out on Christ. The wages of sin is death. Jesus experiences death on the cross, but because of his innate righteousness and because of the power of God, he overcomes death, hell, in the grave. He rises from the dead so that death no longer has to have its grip upon man. And the scriptures say that you or me or anyone who believes in Jesus places our trust in him rather than our own goodness. We do not perish, but we have everlasting life. When we call upon him, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Our sins are washed as white as snow. They are cast as far as the east is from the west. 
we find forgiveness, we find hope, we find new life in Jesus Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus, it's like being born again. He told the woman at the well, it's like having living water flow within you. Instead of your life pushing people away in bitterness, your life is refreshing to others as they see God working within you. Now, because we as believers have experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God, not according to our own righteousness or our works, but he extends that to us through Jesus Christ. Because we have experienced that forgiveness, he expects us, you and me, to live forgiven. How would you feel if you were sitting on death row with no hope? Sitting in prison like Joseph and suddenly you were pardoned. How would you feel? Relief, joy, gratitude. You would think it would change everything. You would see all of life differently. And as believers, that's spiritually exactly where we are. We have been set free from bondage. Read Galatians. We have been set free from our prison because of the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ. But here's here's what amazes me. As recipients of immeasurable grace, as recipients of unearned grace, forgiveness. Sometimes Christians, sometimes us, we are the last people willing to extend forgiveness and grace to others. It drives me crazy how Christians cannibalize one another, get our computers out and write blogs about people that maybe disagree slightly with us on some issue. Move on. People do us wrong and we harbor grudges and we're not able to live forgiven. And many of us, we've been set free spiritually, but we live, this, live in this world in bondage. Because we're not able to extend grace and forgiveness to other people. Now ideally, when we talk about forgiveness, then we forgive and we forget. Ideally, when we extend forgiveness to someone, the relationship is fully restored and we're able to go forward as if, Nothing's happened. We, we move on together. But there's a reality that we all realize, and that is you can't control the other person's behavior. And sometimes you can be willing to extend forgiveness to someone, but they don't respond in a favorable way. And there's also the reality that at times you can extend forgiveness in the sense that I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to let it hold on to my heart any longer. But there still needs to be some healthy boundaries. I give you the quick example of let's say someone commits a crime against your family and they land in jail. You can extend forgiveness in the sense that uh, you're not going to be angry or bitter. You're not going to relive that over and over again. You're going to move on, but they still live in jail, not in your upstairs bedroom. There's a boundary. There's a healthy boundary. I came across something that said this. It said forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. When someone does you wrong, when you've been hurt, whenever you are angry, whenever they have tied you up in knots, ultimately you're going to do one or, one or two things. You're either going to rehearse it or you're going to release it. You're going to rehearse it and live it over and over again. You're going to lie in bed at night and think about 
why this happened, why that happened. Perhaps you're going to think about how you can retaliate, how you can get even, what your next move needs to be. And in the process of rehearsing it, you're going to let it tie you up and throw you down, and you're going to miss much of the joy and goodness that is right in front of you today. Or you can release it. Through the power of God, God, with your help, I need to move on. And so I give this to you. I talk to you often about how in life we have the small bucket, which is those areas that we can really control, and then you have that medium-sized bucket, which are those areas where you may have some influence over, but it's usually minimal. And then you have this big bucket, all this stuff that ultimately you have no control over. God has to take charge of it. And in life, so often we spend hours and days and years tied up with the big bucket stuff that we can't change. The only thing we can do is trust God. We can't completely even understand it all. It's beyond us, but we have to trust that God does exist and that He's in control and that He is working for good to them that love Him who are called according to His purpose, as Romans teaches. And so here is my prayer for you today. Here's what I'm really hoping that you take from this message. That you will trust in God's sovereign love for you today to such an extent that you will be able to release the past and move into the future. The future that your gracious God has prepared for you. My prayer is that you'll be able to trust your God. Throw yourself on Him. Ask Him to fill in the blanks. Ask Him to take care of those areas that you don't understand, those areas that are beyond you. And trust in the reality that He has a life for you today and a hope for you tomorrow. And start living again rather than being captured by what has happened. There is joy. There is goodness. There's laughter. There's love. There are relationships. And there's moments to be enjoyed today. Don't miss them. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads as we stand together? We come to a time of commitment. Hey, listen, guys, I I know that what I said today um, in some of our lives, it digs pretty deep. It makes us uncomfortable because some of us are living with big questions. We're living with hurt. People have abused us, they've betrayed us, they've hurt us very, very deeply. And maybe at times you've even tried to make efforts to move on and the other person hasn't responded or you just haven't been able to do it. I know sometimes this is a process You don't just necessarily hear one sermon and say, okay, everything's good now. 
I want you to know I'm praying for you and I love this church so much. And I want to see you live the life that God has for you today. I, I want you to look around and realize that right where you are, there is goodness and opportunity and love and laughter to be enjoyed. That the hands of God are writing the story of your life and that your life story is really his story. I hope you understand that God has a tomorrow for you. And that even whenever this life ends, as believers, we have hope. That even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so I just pray that you can let go of of the past. It doesn't mean you're not grateful. It doesn't mean that you don't remember, but don't let it don't let it rob you hold you captive because there's life to be lived it's time to move on in some cases father thank you for this moment do your work in our hearts because ultimately what we need is a work of god in jesus name we pray amen